Well, good morning. It is a great privilege to be with you this morning for the purpose of opening God's word, seeing what he has for us, and ultimately seeing his very face and the glory of God in the sun this morning. I'm looking forward to being a part of that with you. So thanks for having me back. I wore my jacket today. Uh, I had a few people comment on that who've seen me before. I just feel like as a young church planner trying to hold it together, I'm trying to look respectable in any way that I can. So uh, this, I'm trying to be very professorial this morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I've never been to the Hoover Dam. I would assume some people here have. By show of hands, have you, have you been to the Hoover Dam? Yeah, it's, it's a tourist attraction. People come from all over the country for this, to see this modern day engineering marvel. It's a feat. It took five years to construct uh, on the border between Nevada and Arizona, five years from 1931 to 1936. And what's beautiful about the Hoover Dam is that it didn't create any power. It merely unleashed power. The Colorado River had been running in that area for as long as we know it had been there. But a decision was made that the power that was latent in the river, that if it could be dammed and repurposed, that it could, produce, it could produce electricity for a lot of people. And it does. In fact, since 1936, up and down the western coast, all across California, Arizona, and Nevada, counties and principalities and cities are powered by electricity that has been unleashed from the Colorado River because of the Hoover Dam. It's a, it's a feat. It's a feat so impressive and so grand in scope that people travel just to see it. And this morning, as we study the scriptures together, as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11, we're going to see a church there, the church at Antioch, that I think in many ways is a Hoover Dam church. It's a Hoover Dam church in that Christians, when they say yes to Jesus, when they come into relationship with God, the power of God is is in you, is in us as individuals. We are a people that are being filled with God's power and it is in us. But what we will see in Acts chapter 11 is there are certain realities that when a community begins to be knit together and structured in certain ways, it's almost as if a people of God are knit into something that can be like the Hoover Dam, that we can become Hoover Dam Christians who allow the power that's already in us. We're not creating any new power, but we're releasing it in new and fresh and full ways. The church in Antioch was a unique church. It was a church, as we will see, that was that was planted and ended up having an outsized kingdom impact for where it was and who it was planted by, arguably the most influential church in the first century and beyond. And what we will see as we go back, we're gonna try to discover what are the non-negotiables of a Hoover Dam community, of Hoover Dam Christians, of Christians who have the electric, the, the divine electricity running through them and out in ways that go far beyond what we would anticipate. And so with that being said, I'm going to invite you to direct your attention to Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. And we're going to work through this passage, paying attention to what was going on in Antioch in hopes that these same marks would be true of us as individuals and more importantly, true of us as a community. Permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says of the scriptures just before we read them. He said, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. What that means this morning is that everything that we can see and touch in the physical world, it is currently moving towards chaos and decay. It will not ultimately hold together. 
But when we come to the word of God, we're in touch with something eternal and life-giving and powerful and we would be really wise to pay attention. Acts chapter 11, we're gonna start in verse 19. It says this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now let's pause there. We will pick up the story and keep moving after we make some observations on this first portion. Here we're introduced to this church in Antioch as it's starting. And the first non-negotiable of a Hoover Dam community becomes really clear. What we are going to see is that everyone has a role to play. Everyone has a role to play in a community that has divine electricity running through it and touching the world around it. This church was, was planted after the persecution had started. We, we read at the beginning that it was just after Stephen had been stoned and the church had been scattered. This was a devastating time for Christians. Stephen was a leader that was full of the spirit and full of power. He was condemned to death and stoned while the church watched and the, the church began to scatter, running to take cover. And they've spread out increasingly over the known world and they've landed in places even like Antioch, it says. And as these Christians who are running for the purpose of safety, they land in a place like Antioch and it says that as they were going, they were sharing about Jesus everywhere they went, but they were sharing with Jews only. In the first century, many Christians believed that in order to be a Christian, you had to be Jewish. If we're gonna follow this Jewish Messiah, we must become Jewish. And so it was a message for Jewish individuals. But it says there were some of them some of them who began to speak to the Hellenist also, and God began to do a marvelous and a miraculous work. As men and women who had been defined as outside of the people of God started to hear with fresh ears that Jesus was in fact the king of all. And a movement starts in Antioch. But did you hear who planted the church in Antioch? Who was it that began to speak to the Hellenist and let this, this movement of God begin to work through them? Did you hear? Some of them, some of them. Literally, for all of history, a group of no names. They have no names other than some of them. They were a few faithful that were on the run but didn't allow the persecution to silence them and they kept speaking. It's interesting, if we were reading straight through in the book of Acts, what we would have seen so far is the ministry of Peter and of Philip and Saul, the great persecutor of the church, has met the resurrected King Jesus. And in a few chapters, we're gonna be introduced to James the Just leading in Jerusalem. But do you know that none of them are involved in the planting of this church? These Christians that were on the run wondering if they were gonna be persecuted as well did not get to Antioch and think, well, we need to wait for someone back at central headquarters to show up so that the mission of God can continue. They didn't. They said, well, we're some of them, we can keep this thing going. And the reality is this today. If we are going to be Hoover Dam Christians, the sort of Christians that have the great privilege of watching the divine electricity working through us and beginning to light up the world around us, 
It has to be born out of a conviction first and foremost that we all have a role to play. Whatever your name, whatever your story, whatever office you work in, whatever neighborhood you live in, you have been sent purposefully as a representative of King Jesus. You have a role to play. The winds of the spirit blow with velocity and vigor when the people of God are on the mission of God. That is the church. The church is the people of God on the mission of God. It is not a building. It is not a service on Sundays. We don't go to church. We are the church and we are the church when we are particularly doing the things that God has sent us to do, which is being on mission for the glory of his name. When the people of God are on the mission of God, you can almost hear it. It's like the winds of the spirit start to blow in power. When we start believing that we're not spectators, we're not consumers, we are producers with the very spirit of God in us for a purpose and for a call. We can begin to be knit together into into the Hoover Dam realities when we view ourselves like that. Yet also we can be a people that cause the movement of God in our midst to stall out. We can do that. We can do it by beginning to define the church around one particular gift gift or a few gifts. As a church planner, we planted Seven Mile Road two years ago. And I'm a preacher, man. I live for this. I love God's word and I wanna make it plain to people. And one of the things that has happened over the last two years is people will come to Seven Mile Road and I'll ask them, oh, wow, how'd how'd you find us? So glad you're here. And I'll hear on occasion, on on maybe rare occasion, but I'll hear it on occasion. We heard you were a great preacher and we came to check it out. And there's part of me in that moment that in some insidious place in my heart, I'm like, yes, all right. But in a much more honest and true place, there's a part of my soul that dies in that moment. Because if the church becomes about a preacher and his gift, Just count on the fact that the winds of the spirit will stop soon. It's like gathering around and turning on a faucet and watching one drip at a time and going, isn't that wonderful? I bet that water is very refreshing. When what God has designed us to be is not a group that gathers around one spigot, but says we are a Hoover Dam community. He wants to run through us in a way that takes power to the world. And we have to begin to view our identity not as consumers of a particular gift or even as a community that comes together because we just love the people around here. I make some good business connections. I get a little truth sprinkled over my week. That was a win at church. When we begin to view church like that, just trust that the electricity is going out. Trust that the winds of the spirit will cease to blow in a place like that. Because a Hoover Dam community is a community of people that say we as individuals and corporately are on the mission of God. That's who we are. I would invite you to be a community that says not us. We will not let the winds stall out. We will not let the movement of God stall out in us. We will together say, send me, oh God, I am yours. We are yours. If we're gonna be that sort of community that has an outsized kingdom impact, it's gonna start with us saying, everyone has a role to play. Antioch, the most influential church, it was planted by some of them. How about that? 
But not just that. That's not the only non-negotiable. It's the first. And we can kind of feel the construction of the dam beginning. We can feel the electricity building. But that's not all. The second reality is this. In a Hoover Dam community, grace is visible. It's visible. It's not just a word. It's not just a principle. It actually is a visible reality. Look back with me in the text. Starting in verse 22, it says this. The report of this... Now this is all of these Hellenists coming to faith in Jesus in Antioch. The report of this, it came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch and when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And what's going on here? The church back in Jerusalem has heard that they know the Christians have been scattered out over the over the known world. And I can only imagine if you were a leader in the life of Jesus's church in Jerusalem and you know there's persecution and Christians scattered around, you're wondering how's everybody doing and you're looking for reports that are coming back in. And one report that trickles back in is something's happening in Antioch. And at first blush they would go, really? Antioch? I thought this was mostly a Jewish thing. There's a lot of Hellenists there. You're telling me there's, there's a great movement among Greek people in Antioch going on. They say, we gotta send somebody. So they send Barnabas. The interesting thing about Barnabas is if we were paying attention throughout the book of Acts, what we would know is that his real name is not Barnabas. His name is Joseph. And he was so generous and so encouraging that the apostles and the church in Jerusalem said, you know what? We're gonna give you a nickname. You're no, no longer Joseph, you're Barnabas, which literally in Greek means son of encouragement. Like that's what you do all the time. You never stop. You're just a son of encouragement. You old son of encouragement. <laughs> um, and he gets, and so all of a sudden Barnabas, he doesn't even have a name. He's not Joseph anymore. He's, he, his name has been forgotten in the book of Acts. He's never referred to as Joseph anymore. He's only the encourager. And so they hear that these people who've been scattered and have stayed faithful in Antioch, they say, we need to send the encourager. And so when Barnabas shows up, isn't it interesting? It says he shows up in Antioch and he saw grace. What an interesting phrase from the author, Luke. He says he saw it. Grace is one of those beautiful church words that we use. And uh, you know, it's It's beautiful. It means God's riches at Christ's expense. That's one way to remember grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. What it means is that we are a people that have forfeited the right to receive God's favor. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we have politely and sometimes not very politely asked God to just leave us alone. And because of his love and affection for us, he came. He came in the person and the work of his son, Jesus, and he died on a cross to pay for our sins so that not only could we receive forgiveness, but we could receive favor. We could receive the family hand of God. Welcome to the family, son or daughter. Grace. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful doctrine that we talk about and that we sing about. But if we're not careful, it will become a principle that we mentally assent to. Like we can answer the question on the test, but it's just a principle. It's something we talk about or sing about. But for Barnabas, when he shows up in Antioch, it's something he can see. Now, how does a theological principle about God's riches at Christ's expense become visible, where we can see it? 
I think there's at least two clues in the text. The first, just before and just after Barnabas sees grace, it says in verse 21 and in verse 24, a great many were coming to faith. I think it was, it was first the, the mass movement of humanity. It was people whose stories were being transformed. Stories like my friend Jose, who recently was baptized at Seven Mile Road. He had been a crack addict who was working in, uh, in an auto shop and he ended up connecting with us and with a, with a partner ministry and through that heard the gospel, made a profession of faith and was baptized. He'd been living with his girlfriend for 13 years and became convicted by the Lord that I, I ought not be living with and, and sleeping with a woman who's not my wife. So they got married. She wanted nothing to do with this God but she was starting to see him show up in her husband. And then all of a sudden, Jose said, I don't know how to preach it to her anymore. And through community and the brothers with him saying, well, how about you just love her like Jesus loves the church? And as he began to lay his life down for her, she said, I wanna go to that church you're going to. So she started sitting in worship. And in a few weeks, his wife is going to be baptized by him. And what we're saying is we watch this. A man that says, I was locked in my own life, in my own addiction, like I had locked myself in that auto shop. He says, Jesus came and he opened the doors and it's not just opening the doors in his life. Now he is a conduit of the divine electricity that's reshaping his wife's story. And he's going to be the one that say, I bury you and raise you up to walk in newness of life in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That that is something we're gonna, that's visible grace. It's the stories of people that are saying, how could it be? And it's not just the stories of the people, but I think the second note in the text is that it's happening in Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, 500,000 plus people known for sexual immorality and idolatrous worship. They play it fast and loose in Antioch. What happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. That's what they would say about this place. Such that religious people, when they heard that a movement was happening in Antioch, would say, wait a second. Not there. Not with those people who do that sort of thing. You see, grace is the banana peel that religious people slip on. Grace offends religion. It offends religion. Good, proper religious people they look at the people that grace is welcoming in and go, I don't know about that. Our Bible study is gonna be very uncomfortable with that person sitting in the circle. You see, grace obliterates those categories. Grace becomes visible when we start to believe that at the center of the universe is a God that's bubbling over with affection and it's not for the found, it's for the lost. His heart beats fast for those that are far from him and say, what am I doing? Who am I that I could be a part of that? And he says, it's exactly for you. Grace becomes visible when we start to believe it. When we don't believe grace is a mechanism that saves us, but we believe it that it's the air that we breathe that keeps us alive. When we start to breathe grace and we see it all around us, watch out. The Hoover Dam is being constructed as a people believe that they have been sent and grace is becoming a visible, tangible, breathable reality. And then the third mark is this, the third non-negotiable is that the leadership is on point. That leaders are called to a very different and real thing in a community like this. 
And so as we look at the leadership, I just wanna say that if you're in leadership in any way here at Woods Edge, receive this as a call. If you are not in leadership, receive this as an opportunity to, to hold your leaders to accountability and to pray for them along these lines because if a community is going to function like the Hoover Dam, releasing divine electricity in the world, the leaders have a specific role to play. Look at the text with me, starting in verse 23b. It says this, and he exhorted them. This is Barnabas who's just arrived. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch and for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, when Barnabas shows up, it says that he exhorted the people to stay steadfast in their faith. The interesting thing is that in the original language, the word for exhorted them is the same root word for his nickname. Uh, it's the, the word for encourage. And so in essence, Barnabas shows up and he just starts Barnabasing. Like he doesn't know what else to do. He's like, you guys are doing great. Stay healthy, lay a strong foundation. He's calling them to be steadfast. This is a lot of people who are new to faith and are really excited about it. And what he's saying is someday the sun is gonna come up and it's gonna be hot and it's gonna wanna scorch this thing. Let's, let's lay deep roots and foundations. And so he's encouraging them and saying, stay, stay steadfast even when things are hard. He's equipping the saints and encouraging them. It's what comes naturally to Barnabas saying, you guys are doing great, stick with it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Let grace be visible, breathe it in. You see, he doesn't show up and start doing the ministry. It's some of them who are ushering many people to faith and to those who are meeting Jesus, he says, now let me encourage and strengthen you. He's not doing the ministry, he's equipping the saints for ministry. And very quickly, because he's full of the spirit and of faith and of humility, he realizes, and I can't do it alone. And he all of a sudden remembers a guy from his past named Saul. Now Barnabas was there after Saul, the persecutor of the church, had met the resurrected King Jesus and he brought him into the church. But there are a lot of people who are currently Christians and that were Jewish Christians that didn't like the fact that Saul had become a Christian and they didn't like that he was preaching and he started to be persecuted. So Saul went home. Saul went back to his hometown called Tarsus and we have not heard from him for years. He's been hiding out for years. But Barnabas, in his faithfulness. What we know is that Paul was still being faithful, but he did not have the sort of ministry that he had, but Barnabas remembered him and went and said, went to Tarsus and found Saul. And he said, there's these people and they would benefit greatly from a great theologian who could come and train and equip them. I think the time has come for you to step into this sort of role. And Saul steps into ministry because of Barnabas's encouragement. Now, can you imagine this pastoral duo the most encouraging and generous and gracious guy in Barnabas is the head pastor at Antioch. And Saul is the teaching pastor. Paul, the author of the significant portions of the New Testament, the greatest theologian and teacher and church planner and mission man. And together they are pastoring this church for a year. Can you imagine what that must have been like? The people are being strengthened and encouraged and equipped. And in essence, what the leadership is doing, what our leadership today is called to, they're taking a spider fish, or pardon me, a starfish approach rather than a spider approach. 
there's a book by a title called The Starfish and the Spider several years back talking about the way that a movement works. And they say a movement is a starfish, it's not a spider. Because a spider has a central headquarters that in the head hears all of the information that is going to influence its movement and its growth. And if the head is removed, that spider is not gonna continue to move and be vital. But with a starfish, you could cut off one or two of the points of a starfish or cut it right down the middle. And you know what it will do? It will regenerate and keep moving. The reason is because every piece of that starfish has the DNA of starfishness in it. It knows what it is to continue to move. Paul and Barnabas were so committed to the church being the church that they said, we are not gonna take center stage. We're gonna equip you and train you to stay faithful and put your roots down deep. In essence, if we were removed, you'll keep going. And you know what happened? A year later, they were removed. They got sent out as church planners. Talk about a hit to the church. Two pastors, one fell swoop, the greatest teaching pastor, the greatest encouraging pastor of all time sent out in one moment. And you know what happened in Antioch? They stayed strong. They moved on. They continued to be ascending church. And the reason, the reason because the leadership had functioned in its proper role to equip the saints, to say everyone has a role to play and grace is visible. And so our role is to play this role from the margins, encouraging and equipping you and sending you back out. You see, Hoover Dam leadership is leadership that is humble and works from the edges, equipping and sending the saints, not thinking that the ministry is about leading. Well, there's one final note that this, this community, can you feel the construction? Everyone has a role to play, grace is visible, the leadership is playing their role, and then the last note is this, the place where the divine electricity spills out and carries its ministry all across the known world is when everybody opens their hands with generosity for everything that they have. This is where all of a sudden the, the, the dam is clicked on and the electricity starts coursing out. Look at verses 27 to conclusion. It says this, Now in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the the elders by the hand of Paul, or of Barnabas and Paul. Um, Open-handed generosity, did you hear it? Agabus comes and stands and proclaims there's a famine coming, and they with the ears of faith receive this as the word of God. And when they receive it, isn't this amazing? They hear there's a great famine coming, and their first thought is not, We need a storehouse. (laughs) We're gonna go hungry. If I received that word from a prophet, I'd be thinking, how are we gonna eat? Their first thought, how do we raise up funds and take care of our brothers and sisters in other places? And then after that thought, it says, every one of them, according to their ability, says, what can I give to participate in it? A Hoover Dam community realizes that nothing that they currently have belongs to them. Let me speak very plainly to you. Your money does not belong to you. Your time does not belong to you. Your gifts, your home, your spare bedroom, none of it belongs to you. It has been entrusted to you briefly by God as a steward. 
And a Hoover Dam community starts to look at what's in their hands and go, well, if it's not mine, and it was always his, and he's knit me together into this place where I'm seeing grace and I'm breathing it in, we start to go, well, how do I contribute? How do I be a part of this going out to the ends of the world? How do I invite someone in, let someone live in my guest room? Or how do I give more faithfully to the mission to help support a missionary, to be a part of what God is doing around the corner or a church plant? <laughs> Little plug, just throwing it in there. But no, what does it look like, right? To live with open hands. The truth is, one of the ways we can snuff out the electricity of God is to begin to grasp any one of us, grasping squelches the winds of the spirit. It snuffs them out. If I grasp at glory because I get to stand and preach, the winds of the spirit will be snuffed out. If we grasp at our dollars, if we grasp at our time and we go, it's mine. As soon as we take this posture, we are beginning to rob ourselves of the experience of divine electricity coursing through us in a way to bless the world. You see a Hoover Dam community as one where we say everyone has a role to play. Grace is visible and central and it's the, it's the energy that's pulsing through our veins. Leadership is playing its role, equipping the saints, and we all together with open hands are saying, okay, God, it's all yours. We're ready. Now, if I may put on my Barnabas hat for a moment and say, Woods Edge, you're doing great. Like, it's a privilege to get to make the trip out every few months and see what God's doing. He's doing a work through you. You have a great reputation in this city. You are blessing people. You are living generously. Stay at it. But even as you come to this 25th anniversary, looking back over your history and then looking forward, would you dare to imagine what would look like if every one of you, literally every man and woman in this room were to say, I have been sent by God. And you live with grace as a visible reality, trusting and being equipped by your leaders as you with open hands wait for God to move. You will see and experience things that 10,000 years from now, before the throne of Jesus, we will giggle with joy and say, I can't believe I got to be a part of that. That's a life worth living. Let's be Hoover Dam Christians. Let me pray for us. Gracious God and Father, I thank you. I do thank you that grace is not a cold, distant theological principle but that in your son, Jesus, it is a visible reality. We thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. And I pray that we would be a people that live in light of it and that we would be a people that get to be a part of outsized kingdom impact in the world as you course through us. You are welcomed in this place, God. We love you. We bless you. We pray it in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.